it's your death sentence for this week. Um, we are joined online by Wendy Lou, author Hi. of... That's her right there. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Every, everyone disrupts my flow on that. It's like a... like. I think audience members are like all in some secret DM where they're like, "Hey, if he starts talking, just like talk over him. Doesn't matter." I, I'm, I'm sorry. Wait. If you if you want to do that again, I will just remain silent no. until pause. No Wait until his weakest. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she is the author of Abolish Silicon Valley, which is a cool name for a book. And um, it's out on Repeater Books on April the 13th. 14th, actually. Ah, damn it. I, I, I knew, well, one time I choose to do research on anything. <laughs> very slightly wrong. April 14th. Well, at, least, at least you got earlier rather than later. Be like, yeah, let's fuck up their first day sales. Let's be like, it comes <laughs> out May 1st. And you're like, that's not true at all. Why are you saying that? <laughs> Well, I mean, people can still pre-order it on April 13th. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that totally works. I actually had an editor say that it was already out, like, a couple of months ago. And, you know, it's fine. No one, no one's ready. It's all good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all cool. Um, Everyone so, in the book world, what we've learned is trying their best. Yeah, they're, they're just <laughs> small beans who have anxiety, just like us. And um, they, they try their hardest. And, uh, but... I, I figured before we, we start off with um, you know, actually talking about the book and stuff, we we probably need to perform a vibe check. Um, you know, th- these are these are times with fucked vibes. You know, I'm, you know, it's not PC to say that, I know, but uh, yeah, vibes are kind of fucked right now. So um, yeah, Langdon, vibes. How, how are you? How are they? Uh, I played Dynasty Warriors until six a.m. Oh God. Yeah, I'm, you know you I'm, can call me whenever, at any time. I, I'm 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 entering the K hole. To be fair, I did unlock <laughs> Hades and a Snake Man and Joan of Arc. <laughs> which Dynasty Warriors is this? Uh, Warriors Orochi Four, uh, which is oh, the God. um the compilation one of the compilation games. There's another compilation called Warriors All Stars where you can play as the host of a video pachinko game. Wow, that's wild. Like, Dynasty yeah. Warriors is the one about like feudal uh, China, right? Yeah, Romance yeah. of the Three Kingdoms. Yeah. Okay, but Pachinko it's and actually Jedivark. an amazing game. Yeah, they're uh, I I love the shit out of them. I've been playing them rapidly since the second one came out. I wrote a like a, a whole like thirty thousand word like big. No, it's only fifteen thousand word, like big article about them that no one wanted to publish. That was that was a fun that's a fun venture. I was like, hey, video game world, I have this lot, and they're like, no, and I'm like, what? But I have a degree, and they're like, I don't give a shit. All right, more Overwatch content now. <laughs> I mean, I would totally read that. I actually wrote a blog post about Dynasty Warriors. I think I talked about Dynasty Warriors, and it was some sort of like leftist theoretical point I was trying to make. But really, I was just playing a lot of Dynasty Warriors, and I wanted to write about it. So I totally totally get you. Oh, I'm I'm linking that in chat right now. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So uh, okay, Langdon's vibes are, are terrible because he's obviously playing obscure video games till six a.m. Um, Wendy, how 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 are the vibes there on on the West Coast? Um, 
you know, it could be better, I'll say. But also, mm -hmm. I think at this point, it's it's almost like the calm before the storm. Um, I think a thing I'm really worried about is meltdown May. By oh my you know, god! Right now I, things are bad. We think things are bad now. What are they going to be like in a month from now? That's what I'm worried shit. about. And not I don't I don't just mean like you know online, although that's the thing I'm scared about. But also just like in the world. Um, I I really feel like right now we're just in this lull where things are still manageable and that the world could be dramatically upended in a month. So I'm scared about that. I mean, like on a personal note, my book tour has been canceled. Um, mm, we're hearing a lot of that lately. Yeah, I mean, like whatever. It's 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 just a book. It, people can still read it. I don't need to be anywhere, like at an event or anything. It's whatever. Um, on the bright side, I am spending a lot more time at home playing video games. So, mm -hmm. okay, bright what, what, or non-bright side. <laughs> I don't what, know. What are you playing? I am playing a lot of RuneScape, old school nice. RuneScape. Yeah, you I'm playing, book, wow. you? yeah, yeah. That's when you talk I about do. in the book. A lot. Yeah, and I, I really, I was hoping that I wouldn't get sucked back into it, but I did. And I'm playing this new mode called Iron Man, which is like kind of apt or either like perfect for our times or the opposite of what we need. It's this mode where you can't trade with other players. You like can't interact with them. So everything mm -hmm. you get in the game is just you working on your own. There is no such thing as society. It's only individual wow. Iron Men. Yes, it's like Margaret Thatcher's dream. And I'm actually really enjoying this mode because it makes me appreciate all the things that society gives us that we take for granted. Wow. So your, your next book is probably going to be like completely flipped around. It'll be abolish my previous book. I've now learned <laughs> that selfishness is a virtue. We'll see. We'll see where Meltdown May takes me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I completely forgot about Meltdown May. Holy. Yeah, that's... I mean, things are bad right now out there, especially online. But yeah, when people have been inside for a month and a half, and they're, yeah, they're going to be going crazy. Ah, okay. My vibes here in, in sunny Manchester are actually really good. Like, I'm scared about how well I'm handling being at home and all day and never leaving and working from home. And it's really like the weather's great here which you don't get much of Manchester. Uh, I haven't touched any video games yet because that's like, I'm doing really, I'm being really productive. And I know that if I get like, if I think like, okay, I can actually get good at Sekiro this time. If I actually apply myself, uh, then yeah, then all my productivity is going to go. But um, we'll see. Maybe in Meltdown May, I will actually mask Sekiro. Well, everyone else there is- There is something- there is something beautifully soothing about um, parrying the shit out of people instead of doing anything productive in your life, including the dishes or bathing. Mm. You're like, I may be slowly turning into a pyramid of sludge permanently encasing my couch, but but that fucking gorilla is is like triple dead now. Well, I, have, I haven't even got to the gorilla. Like I, I okay. tried it when it came out. I got to uh, general... Uh, Ashihana couldn't get past him. Um, I'm, I just I suck at parrying. All I all I do is spam well, that, light attacks. That game is nothing but parrying. So I that's know. basically like <laughs> I'm, like my brain bad at the primary mechanic, but all of the non-primary mechanics I'm fine at. <laughs> yeah, I know it, it's like my my brain can't go from spamming L1 attacks to spamming 
all one attacks. See, this like, is why I like Dynasty Warriors, because if you if you know the game really well, there's like an arc of how you play it of like, I only use normal attacks. And you're like, I'm learning their combos. There's a really deft kind of. But then when you get really good, you're like, I only use square. <laughs> I don't I don't do special attacks. That's for scrubs. No, I grind. <laughs> I grind like it's my fucking job. And then I get so fucking strong. See, you'd, you'd resonate well with it, Gareth. What you're describing is a Dynasty Warriors player at heart. You don't want to think, use strategy, or be smart. You just want to kill a lot of people really quick. There's this uh, a Buddhist saying that um, a novice looks at a mountain and sees a mountain, whereas a uh, pupil of the path of Zen looks at a mountain and sees like uh, a void empty of form. Whereas a master of Zen looks at a mountain and sees the mountain. And I think that's what you're describing in Dynasty Warriors. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad I went to college. It allows uh, you to transcend the formal constraints of video games that are superimposed upon them by creators and developers and see the true heart, which is square button, best button. It is, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, Wendy, you yeah. are... Abolish Silicon Valley is coming out on repeater books real soon. So, uh, yeah, this is a this is a cool book because um, a you actually went there and did that. You were in Silicon Valley. You were in a, a startup company. Uh, you did all the things that are supposed to make people into billionaires. And um, yeah, you came out the other side with a a solid leftist critique of Silicon Valley. So how about we get to know you a little bit first? So how did where where were you where did, how did you get into the whole computer business? Sure, yeah. So I guess I'll um preface by saying when when I when you say I was in Silicon Valley, I guess like Oh yeah, in Montreal. Yeah, the technically, I mean, metaphorically, I was in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I was in the yeah. mindset of Silicon Valley. I was it was in that dream, yeah, but Silicon yeah. Valley is like a synecdoche. Yeah, yeah. I mean, physically, I think like my company, we were always trying to move to Silicon Valley, but we weren't quite there yet. So my background is I started programming when I was pretty young. I think my I built my first website when I was 12. And from there, it kind of just snowballed. I, I just really got caught up in that whole world. I was a pretty, pretty uh, boring kid. I just played a lot of RuneScape and um, built websites mostly. And, and so from an early age, I was introduced to the idea of the the culture around programming. And also I got a glimpse of the fact that there was like a life after this for me, that if I just kept improving my programming skills, eventually I could land a really great job in um, a faraway culture that actually valued people like me. And so I really, I really clung on to clung on to that. I really believed in this idea of like, you know, the whole revenge of the nerds fantasy where mm. just like I'm really unpopular, really, uh, I don't know, a shitty kid right now, like my life sucks, but maybe if I keep programming, then eventually I'll get to the point where I have a lot of money and I'm in a place where people like me. And mm. so I think that's, that's something that definitely like psychologically impacted the way I saw Silicon Valley and um, all the, you know, the philosophical and economic arguments around it. And so mm. I studied computer science and math in college. And that was when I started, you know, working as a software developer, like professionally, because before I had mostly just been doing freelance jobs and open source programming. And um, in my third year, I did an internship at Google in San Francisco. And that was my introduction to actually working in 
the Bay Area in a software role. And I remember, you know, before before working there, I I just had a very naive idea of the tech industry and how it worked. And I I believed all the hype. I believed all the press about Google being this um, idealistic, uh, utopian place where people just like, I don't know, bike around and uh, only work a few, they they only work 80% of the time like on Google. They have 20% of the time to just do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just paid a lot of money. They get massages. There's no bureaucracy. It's all just geniuses interacting with geniuses. I, yeah, I was, I was really naive. And I get there and it's just, you know, like any other big company in, in, in a lot of ways, it was becoming much more bureaucratic by the time I got there. Um, I remember the team I was working on, was it was like fine, but it just felt, it wasn't technically interesting. It was very much just like, you know, putting together um, APIs, uh, building like a dashboard so you can look at graphs. And I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. You know, the team I was working on, it didn't seem like they were working on something that I wanted to work on. I was looking around and, you know, my intern friends were working on like Google Plus, which of course got shut down not long after, or they're mm-hmm. working on writing internal blog posts or um, changing the size of some buttons on YouTube or something. And I was just like, this is really the kind of work that people do these days. And, you know, it did seem like there were more interesting gigs to be found within the company, but it also just, it uh, challenged my understanding of what the company was like and also just what the rest of the tech industry was like. Because, I mean, I think, I got to the point where I felt like I could just go back to Google and work on this full time and my life will just be, you know, waking up in the morning, going to work, coming home, maybe going out to dinner, like spending my money on entertainment, whatever, you know, while drawing a six-figure salary. And there was something about that that just felt a little bit empty, but in a way that I didn't really know how to articulate and I didn't know how to talk to people about it. And so when I went home, uh, went back to school, I was left with this nagging sense of uh, that something was wrong but I just didn't know what, because, you know, my, my whole life, I'd really believed this idea of, uh, this idea of meritocracy and education and hard work. And that like, I'd been working so hard all this time, you know, trying to get good grades, trying to do all these extracurriculars and like do part-time jobs. I was working so hard because it would set me up in a great position by the time I left school so that I could get a great job. And then, you know, that was kind of it. That was the end of the story. I never really thought about what came after that. What did it mean to have a good job? What was the purpose of my life beyond just making a six-figure salary and living in a nice apartment in Soma? I, I just didn't really understand. And the closer I got to having to actually make the decision about what I was going to do after college, the more nervous I got about it. And the, the more I was kind of like panicking, like, okay, I, I don't want to be I don't want to regret anything, so I'll just, I'll just like go to Google because you know no one regrets working at Google. And so I, I remember they sent me the, um, the return offer, and I just signed it, even though I thought I did not want to work there. I was like, I'll just sign it. Who like you know what's the worst that could happen? Um, but then over the course of that year, I realized I did not want to go back there for just a bunch of reasons. Um, but mostly that it just felt kind of soul crushing in this really strange way that I felt like no one around me would be able to understand because, you know, the image of Google is that it's like, it's the goal. It's what everyone should be aspiring to do. At least that was, that was the only vision of the world as I understood it at the time. Um, And so I ended up looking for alternatives and I found some other people in my university who were willing to start a startup. Uh, And so we started a startup uh, and we had very little guidance except from, you know, blog posts we'd read from venture capitalists, uh, books, um, just yeah, people people's giving lectures and um, there was like a bit of a startup community in Montreal 
but it wasn't, it wasn't very big. And we just fumbled our way into, you know, talking to investors, talking to an accelerator program, talking to customers. And over the course of the next three years, we built a company that actually made some money um, and had some pretty cool technology. And in a way, it was it was worse than anything at Google, just because, uh, you know, there I was confronted with the fact that even though I had full control, control over my conditions of work, I was still desperately unhappy. And there's something about it that felt wrong. Um, and then over the course of maybe like the the last year of my startup was when I realized that I needed to find something else. Like I needed, there was something I was missing, something that I wanted to do in life that could not be achieved by working as a software engineer or starting a startup. And that's when I started just reading books and like paying attention to the news, paying attention to the world around me. Uh, and as a result, I was, I discovered like the left, <laughs> um, which, you know, I, is a very vague way of putting it, but I like discovered critiques of just the the world as is. And I realized that Silicon Valley was part of it and that everything I thought was, um, everything that I admired about Silicon Valley was in fact part of a larger system that had these massive problems. And the more I started to pay attention to the news, you know, like this was 2016, Trump was just about to get elected. Um, there was a huge uh, debt crisis going on in Europe. You know, everyone like it felt like everyone everywhere was just like struggling and there's ecological crisis everywhere. And I was just like, what am I doing? Why am I building this just like bullshit startup that just gets data on people's, on uh, customers and then sells that to brands? Like, why, why am I doing this? I don't care about this at all. I thought I was doing this for myself. I'm really just doing this for this ecosystem I don't believe in. And that was a big wake up call for me. And it really forced me to reconsider everything I'd been doing, everything I believed up to that point. So yeah, that was a, that's my story in a nutshell. Okay, so was there any like um, big road to Damascus movement, uh, road to Damascus moment where you were like, oh wow, this is my work in a startup, my work at Google, this is wrong, I've got to go somewhere else? Or was it kind of like a, do you kind of like a drip fed, little leftist critiques here and there, and just slowly your eyes opened? It was definitely more incremental. Um, and I think part of it is the fact that I didn't actually know anyone personally who was like, you know, a leftist who, who I could like talk to about this sort of thing. Um, I, so when I started reading leftist critiques, it was very much, it was very ad hoc. It was like people I followed on Twitter would say something and I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. I've never thought of that before. Um, but I, it was, it was piecemeal. I kind of built it up just by like looking for things and coming across things. Something I, I do remember as being pivotal is uh, reading critiques of venture capitalists. Mm. Um, and these are some of these people, they're people who I had a problem with even before kind of being politically radicalized because some of these guys are just idiots, right? Like they're, mm. they're just like very obviously wrong about so many things that even as a really naive, um, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, like person, I could still say, well, these guys are dumb. But then reading leftist critiques of these guys with this kind of analysis that made it clear that what was wrong with these venture capitalists wasn't unique. It wasn't just about them personally. It was about the system. That really opened my mind. 
And there was this one blog post I remember. It was called something like Paul Graham deserves to be eaten. <laughs> uh, like just, you know, playing on the whole eat the rich thing. But this this guy, Paul Graham, venture cap- uh, venture capitalist, like angel investor, he calls himself a lot of things. But he's kind of in a way like one of the godfathers of Silicon Valley. Mm. And I actually interviewed with his startup accelerator back when we were doing our startup. And I idolized him. I read his essays when I was a kid and like that really – opened me to the idea of Silicon Valley and made me really want to be part of this world. And so over the next few years, as I slowly became disillusioned with this guy and what he was saying, um, I realized that, you know, I had I had to find a new way of looking at it, but I didn't know what that was. And so reading this essay by um, uh, the author is someone named Hollywood. She's like a socialist, sociologist, just like a really great writer. That made me realize like, oh, there's a way of critiquing these wealthy men that's not just about the fact that they're like Silicon Valley people, that they're just mm. wealthy men who have a lot of power and therefore a lot of sh- the, they're very sheltered and they just don't really understand what's going on in the world. And that made me think, okay, well, maybe I should understand what the sociology thing is all about. So that was a big part of what spurred me to um, do a master's degree in sociology at the London School of Economics because I thought like, well, you know, there's got to be something in this theory. I I. I definitely um, hated the idea of the humanities and social sciences when I was younger, just because I thought like only STEM is worth doing. And then I thought, mm-hmm. okay, never mind. Maybe I was wrong. <laughs> Maybe there's something worth, something interesting in this theory. Was it hard going from like STEM to humanities? Because I've never gone the other way. I've just, you know, humanities are I all my life. Um, I guess it was hard in the sense that I had to rethink a lot of what I believed. A lot of th- a lot of these things were key to my identity, right? And part of um, part of understanding sociology is reckoning with your own ideology and the fact that the things you believe are not just like, are not something unique to you necessarily, and also not necessarily right. All these ideas that I had absorbed about meritocracy, especially, I had to unlearn a lot of that really quickly because I was reading, you know, these sociologists describing exactly what I felt in a very critical lens and made me think, oh, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Um, and that was hard. Uh, it wasn't hard, like, it, you know, it's not hard to understand the concepts. It's hard to actually let yourself believe that and consider that to be true because then it means you start to think like, oh, what else was I wrong about? Um, was I a bad person in the past? And I think it's like, it's psychologically difficult, especially for someone like me who had just been so steeped in this ideology and who um, had made it such a, I don't know, a key part of how I relate to the world. Right. Like I, I really believe that I was a better person because I was able to make a lot of money in the tech industry. And I just that's having that being taken away from me, it was I was kind of like, okay, well, what am I? Who who do I who do I want to be? What do I believe in? What value do I bring to the world? And I think that was difficult having to confront those questions. I definitely have a lot of resonance with that personally. Like one of my it doesn't really come up here all that much because of what our um what our focuses are here, but for a long stretch early in my life, I was like very much on that track. Like I still keep up with um, reading about mathematics and things like that and doing um, like just like puzzling out weird lemmas uh, that people have posted and things like that. And I was very big into, into science and tech, like tried my hand at programming stuff for a while, never committed enough to actually get all that far. So it's uh, at, at that point, the similarities end, but very much the like, reading uh, Wired all the time, reading like the big tech blogs of the early to mid 2000s. Uh, my uncle was in 
involved in tech, I sort of envisioned myself going into like math or engineering or something. And it was uh, just like sheer happenstance that I happened to, um, I happened to uh, write fiction quite a bit. And that wound up just due to weird life stuff, tugging me more in that direction. But uh, yeah, even, even getting the same like sociological um, ephemera that lived, especially in the tech world of like, especially unspoken stuff of like certain attitudes towards um uh towards spirituality and culture certain attitudes towards like the inherent supremacy of people that are more stem minded than you know the softer sciences and making you know the the pithy jokes about like you know i'm doing real work that's not real work you're just playing with blocks and talking about your feelings that's not like <clears throat> those kinds of really bizarre um especially from where i stand now as an adult looking back and like oh it's like insanely regressive and like thank god i was like very young when i believed that so it's a lot easier to be a bit forgiving but i was having uh horrible flashbacks of like or not flashbacks because i guess it would have been like a potential future that uh i didn't walk but i even have um a lot of personal friends who like i I'm friends with someone right now who currently works for Google and has a lot of the same complaints that you do. I don't want to name them because obviously they're still employed there and I don't want to. It's um, James Damore. <laughs> it is. Uh, but then bringing up the, like, you have, the, you have this image of like what you're going to do. And especially if you're someone who's been in that kind of field and you've struggled for a while and you're trying to get your feet wet and trying to really establish yourself. And all of a sudden it feels like this like major lifeline from like the biggest, um, or at least outwardly facing the biggest company in the entire tech world. Like there are some bigger behind the scenes figures in terms of their role in like military industrial complexes and building infrastructure there that um, don't get really talked about much outside of like really deep um, like tech magazines that it's like, oh, this is the company that built the NSA black site. And they're going to be infinitely more economically stable because they make the weapons that will brutalize the planet. And, you know, that's always in demand from fascist fucks. But uh, them having similar complaints about just the, um, how, how nightmarishly parodic it is sometimes. Of like, you, you read on, on, on Twitter, like these, these like gross parodies of, of techish, uh, techie dweeb, Types. Like, obviously, not everyone in the tech world is like that. Uh, uh, like, your entire story that you just told is evidence of that. But, and you're like, oh, so that's not going to be all of, and then they talk about going to work, and they're like, all I do is meet people exactly like a bad joke about tech people, like back to back. <laughs> like, every meeting is staffed with people that feel like they're from a sitcom. And it's like, no, no joke could make it funny because of how painfully accurate it is. They're like, before I came in, I watched a really interesting interview with Richard Dawkins. Have you heard of him? And they're like, oh, oh my God. fucking God, it's 2020. Why Why would you think I don't recognize him? Yeah, I, I used to be the one, uh, like, marketing guy in a whole, uh, in a startup. And, um, yeah, everything about tech bros, yeah, it really, like, um, your book really, like, brought that back. And just how, yeah, they're, they're not, they... They all uh, watch a show, Silicon Valley, and they, they laugh about it, but they don't realize that they just do just they watch the show and then they come to the office and do those exact same things over and over again. And it's like yeah. the Colbert yeah, Report I mean, thing. 
Yeah. Um, speaking of HBO Silicon Valley, so I actually mentioned that in, in my book where mm -hmm. we did. started watching it when we when it came out, and like you know we were at the beginning of our startup at the time, and we kind of watched it as like a team bonding exercise, and. I don't know if it's that we were just dumb and didn't understand the critiques or the critiques just like weren't sharp enough, but we were like, oh, this is funny. Oh, this is like, they're kind of, you know, making fun of startup people like us, but mostly it's just funny. And it's, we, we saw it as more of like a how-to manual than as a critique of our lifestyles. Um, and I wonder if like there are people in Silicon Valley who still feel that way about the show, even though it's gotten a lot more scathing recently, but still you can watch it and be like, oh, this is hilarious. This is aspirational. I want to be like this guy. Sure, people are laughing at him, but you know he's like a billionaire. So why would you not want to be like him? And I think, yeah, that's it's it's hard to make um, like cr critical cultural content about something that's so oblivious, <laughs> just like you know your average tech bro. Yeah, yeah, these guys I knew, yeah, they were exactly that. They didn't, um, they had no self awareness on it at all. Um, but. Uh, so we're coming up towards about halfway. So I think we'll we'll just inject a little levity in here um, by playing some grindcore. Oh, um, I was hoping you were going to say the Benny Hill theme song. <laughs> Again, <laughs> British people <laughs> don't care about Benny Hill. No one's seen it. It's it seems to be only Americans who know Benny Hill. I've never no, seen. No, you. <laughs> I only know it from Americans talking about it. I watched The Great British Bake Off, which, of course, is an accurate depiction of uh, pastoral British life. Um, it and is, yes. Britain is, of course, wall-to-wall -wall pasture. Um, nothing mm, nothing but sheep true. and pasture. And yeah. I look at it, and I think when the cameras are not rolling, they're prepping for recording by listening exclusively to the Benny Hill theme song and watching them chase each other around. I guarantee no one on that show has ever seen Benny Hill. Anyway. <laughs> I bet. Are you telling me Paul Hollywood has not internalized the Benny Hill ouvre? <laughs> <laughs> no more Benny Hill. Right. Okay. So we're going to play a band from uh, my old... Actually, I know these guys. Uh, Wake from Calgary. Uh, I used to live there for a while. That's where I worked at this tech company. Um, they're, a kind of, they're a grindcore band, but they're closer to uh, Pig Destroyer than you know these like micro songs and stuff. I kind of hate micro songs now. It's a gimmick. But um, yeah, they've had kind of a string of just like really kind of, again, like Pig Destroy, just a string of really, really solid, really heavy albums. Um, I got into them in like, yeah, 2016. So Sowing the Seeds of a Worthless Tomorrow was a great album. Misery Rights was great. And they got a new one called Devouring Ruin. Um, yeah, and, and it's uh, there's a lot, I think a lot more experimentation on this one. There's some short songs, there's some really long songs, there's a 10-minute song. Um, so it's, I haven't really sat down and really given it a good listen yet, but I like these guys. Oh, I have. I, uh, yeah. This, yeah. Uh, yeah, this was one of the groups that... So I write a monthly metal column called Mining Metal, not the original name. I think I brought this up before. We wanted to call it Thunder Underground because that's both an Ozzy Osbourne song. It, it loosely riffs on the underground resistance which fucking slaps um Good album. and then uh an esoteric metal podcast I already used that name and even though they're not in uh they're not currently going we wanted that seo um which is <laughs> the seo 
that's a that's a beautiful intersection of uh, tech and art criticism worlds that I that I absolutely love. The SEO, mm, yeah. gotta gotta. Oh, Wendy, mm. do you know about SEO? It's going to be big. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I've heard of it. Maybe. Okay. Good, I good. I love how it uh, it reaches in and destroys. It's like, oh, that's a really good title that really really builds off of uh, a lot of the themes and is very evocative. We're not going to use it though. How about this bad one? And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Like the editor in chief came up with the name, and me and the other writer were like, fine. Like I don't. You took my baby, so I guess I'm fine with this. Like turd shoved into a burlap sack with like a human face scrawled on it with uh with <laughs> lipstick i guess i can pretend it's my son um but uh I really hope they don't listen to this wow <laughs> i mean i i like the process of 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 writing it it's just it, we all agreed the the whole title thing was frustrating um, mm -hmm. even the editor in fairness but uh yeah this this wake record was one of the ones that me and that co-writer were like fighting over like who gets to write about it like it reminds me a lot of fuck the facts. It's a, oh, yeah. it's a bit more straightforward, but it's, it it at least lives in that world for me of like the mm. slightly, um, not necessarily proggy, but like progressive thrash. Like it's doing stuff or not thrash, progressive grindcore. Like it's doing stuff in the grindcore mode that you would not immediately think of when you think of yeah. grindcore. Yeah, and like this discordance axis too. Like that's yeah. their that's their whole thing. They invented this whole like progressive grindcore vibe. Um, it sucks that John Chang is a huge piece of shit. Is he? Yeah, oh. he's not like he's just really Republican. That's like he hasn't um, done anything. He's just like super Republican. I hate when that happens. Yeah. The, the weight guys are solid though. Yeah. I've interacted with them a few times in various ways, interviewed them a bunch of times. They're they're solid guys. Uh, one of them has a, a side project, which is like an instrumental trap music. So um, that sounds tight. The, yeah, the singer, in fact. Um, so we're going to play the eighth track on here in the Lair of the Rat Kings, because that is a sick title, and I love it that. Is. Uh, also, um, Google Rat Kings if you haven't already. But uh, yeah, here's Wake.
So that was Wake with uh, Lair of the Rat Kings. Just cool title. Just love that. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're going to uh, end the show with Ruins of Beverast because I like them, even though it's only a, um, it's like a split EP or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we're here with Wendy Lou, author of uh, Abolish Silicon Valley. And it would be remiss of us to not talk about abortion Silicon Valley, especially now when Silicon Valley uh-huh. is kind of, yeah, really fucking things up as you would expect them to. It's just asking to be abolished, really. Yeah. It, like um, Christopher Walken's character in Live and Let Die just had it right. Just uh, detonate nuclear bombs under the San Andreas Fault and let it just all fall into the sea. Uh, don't do that. Parody satire. Um, but yeah, um, so at the end of the book, you don't, you don't, ju- this isn't like a, a memoir, you know, uh, a good chunk of it, yes, is devoted to the story you just, you told in the first half of the show, um, in a lot more detail. And it's a good, that's a good story. And there's, uh, and there's references to Neil Stevenson in there. So we're definitely feeling that. And, uh, but a good chunk at the end, once you've had your conversion, is devoted to like what should we do with Silicon Valley? Um, well, what should we do with the tech industry? I should stop saying Silicon Valley as a standard for tech industry. Presuming that we have to have tech, like a tech industry, um, how do we have one that doesn't suck as, as just horribly badly as the one we have? So yeah, but talk us through a little bit your, your ideas and how to, how to like rein it back in and get it actually working for people. Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll start out by saying that um, the book is like part memoir, part manifesto, probably like 80% memoir, mm-hmm. uh, which is like an awkward way to write a book. I don't really know uh, successful books that have done that. So it's like I've kind of dug myself into a hole here. But at the same time, I think what a lot of what I wanted to say was it could only be told one way or the other. And so like my personal story, I put that in there because I want people to be able to like identify with it. I want people to understand how I got to the point where I did and to show them that I'm not just some like, I don't know, radical coming out of here, coming in, coming here and imposing my ideas. It's like I came to this perspective because of what I went through. And so even if people don't agree with it, at least like I want them to know it's a considered perspective just because like the tech industry has a habit of dismissing criticism as, you know, unfounded, um, ignorant or whatever. And I just, I want to say like, well, consider this because I used to believe the same things you did. Uh, but the manifesto part is I want to illustrate an alternative. I want people to know that like there, there is another way of thinking about how the industry can run. And um, most notably, I would say that what I want to do is make Silicon Valley less of an industry for all the, you know, the negative connotations of the term. Like when we think of industry, we think of something run by capitalists, something that's probably harmful for workers. Like if we talk about, you know, industrial workers, you're thinking of people who um, have uh, like lung cancer or something, right? Because like they're working in terrible conditions and they don't get paid very well. And a couple of uh, robber barons are taking all the money on top. And like, that is pretty much what Silicon Valley is like today for a lot of people. And I think we need to move it away from that. We need to steer the course, like steer it away from that course. Um, because the industry is not getting better on its own. That's the thing that I'm, that I believe very strongly. Over the last few years, it seems like things have been getting worse, or at least like mm-hmm. the the bad things are coming to light. And I, 
don't think that we can get there by letting these like boy geniuses in charge just figure it out and like donate some money to charity or whatever. Um, I think we need to fundamentally change the the model of how tech development works altogether. Um, I think part of that is like giving workers more power because if we if we look at a lot of the problems in the tech industry right now that people are talking about. You know, a big part of it is just like workers, the way workers are treated. If we look at the gig economy, what is the gig economy but like this innovative way of flouting, flouting like labor regulations and mm. saying that these workers are not actually workers and so they don't deserve um, minimum wage, they don't deserve benefits, and they don't deserve any sort of control over their work. Uh, that is like unfortunately a big part of the technology's impact, technology's impact on the world, even if that's not what it meant to be. Like even if there are people at these companies who thought it was something more, this is what they've made. This is like just the the effect that they've had on the world. I think that's that's a huge shame. Um, so yeah, part of it is like we need workers to have more power and maybe that means that these business models don't exist at all or if they do exist, they're like a very different form. They could be co-ops, they could be nonprofits, they could be public services. There are so many ways of doing this. I think it's really important to remember that the model that we're in now is just this, like, it's very conservative. It's very um, archaic. And there's so much in the realm of possibility that we could explore if we wanted to. And it's really frustrating that it hasn't been explored yet. Mm. Like, there's just so much room for innovation. I, you know, and I wish people were, like, thinking about this and had the ability to do something with the different ways we could fund technology. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, in general, we need co-ops, nonprofits, public services, open source. Uh, we need fewer billionaires, like, you know, 100% fewer billionaires, I would say. I, think, I don't <laughs> think anyone should be a billionaire in the world as it exists now. And I think the fact that Silicon Valley is capable of minting billionaires from, from scratch is, it's a bug. It's not a feature. Like this is, I mean, in the sense of capitalism, this is a feature, but I think in the sense of creating a world that is actually good for the people in it, it's definitely, it's definitely a bug. This is, there's no way you can make billionaires in the world as it exists now and have any semblance of like fairness. Cause like, you know, what it, what it doesn't mean to be a billionaire. What does it mean to be that wealthy in a world with scarce resources where some people are suffering? Well, it's, it's unconscionable. It's, it's immoral. Um, and mm. I think that's something we need to figure out like how to prevent. And part of that has to do with uh, maybe like, like changing the way equity works in terms of, you know, having equity in a company, changing the way the stock market works. Like I think, there's probably some entanglement with Silicon Valley and Wall Street that needs to be just like delinked, you know, like abolish Wall Street too, obviously. But I, I, I don't know enough about that to, to say how that would work. But I think in general, like it doesn't make sense that a company should be able to go public and create billionaires or even like multimillionaires. I think, you know, 10 million is already pushing it as to like how much money anyone needs in, in the oh, current yeah. environment. So yeah, I think the the way I talk about it right now is like because the ideas I'm proposing in the book are very new to a lot of people in the tech industry, like those who have, you know, never had to think about this kind of thing before. I, I try to be like kind of vague and, um, and not go too much into the details just because like it's really unclear to me how any of these things would look. Um, so yeah, I mean, happy to talk about anything more, uh, anything specifically in more detail, but in the book, I try to leave it as like kind of a thought experiment. Like imagine if we just had more open source software and uh, people getting paid not by private entities, but by like, I don't know, public public services of some sort or, you know, nonprofits or something like that. 
Yeah, I, one of the things I kind of connected with uh, with the book, coming from a very different life and a very different mindset, was that your your approach to tech was is like an artist basically. You like doing cool stuff, to put it very very simply. Uh, you're you're constantly talking about like we were working on a really interesting problem. It was a really unique approach in the same way that you'd hear a, a fiction writer talk about. Uh, some new style they're working on, new, a new voice, a new way of they, uh, pr- expressing their ideas. And yeah, the, the, you kind of, uh, basically you could, you could rewrite this as a as a book about uh, a writer, an artist of some kind, because all the same problems uh, are absolutely true in the publishing industry, except no one's actually making any money. So um, yeah, that was something I've, I found really cool. And yeah, there as in literally every other business model, uh, cooperatives just uh, work better on every single level. I don't know why, like every other business on earth isn't a cooperative. I, I know of like one, which is a grocery store near me. And um, yeah, it, it's a great business. It works really well. Everyone loves it there. I applied to work there. And, well, it, um, it, uh, it ties into uh, something that, I'm going to be saying a great deal of parody here in a moment. So prepare your parody hats because there's going to be a lot of parody. That's our code word for when we talk about killing. Um, <laughs> it's parody. You can't though, say that. So it's legally protected. It's legally protected. I'm telling a joke. Um, but it ties into. Um, so like you can illustrate why they don't work that way briefly with the story of like how Peter Thiel and. Elon Musk became billionaires. Um, so obviously PayPal, they get their money from PayPal um, and like developing that business, selling it off, things like that. Um, one of the things that PayPal did that enriched it so greatly so quickly, um, because one of the one of the biggest puzzles um, in the tech world is how do how do we make this thing make us money? And so one of the primary ways I'm uh, I'm uh, lucky in a certain way of having an uncle who's been involved in the tech world since like the late 80s so he has um a lot of background with this kind of stuff one of the key ways is you develop some kind of ip and you just cross your fingers and hope you get bought out by a bigger company who's like well we don't want 90 percent of that project but it's more proof of concept of this feature that you own the intellectual rights or that you own the intellectual property for and we're going to give you this big lump sum to distribute amongst um the percentage holders of your company uh, to buy that from you. And now now you're unemployed, but you have hopefully hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Um, but uh, they wanted PayPal to make them direct money. So one of the things that they did was if you had an inactive account for long enough, they would remainder the money from your account into a separate account that PayPal had, and they would functionally close your account out. Um, that's not legal. Uh, in, ca- in case you were wondering, in case you hear that and go, that, that seems odd. It's not legal. In fact, it's so not legal that PayPal got sued uh, and the case went like way up into the court system. And if it wasn't for the fact that by that point, um, I forget who bought them out. I think it may have been Google, um, but they got bought out by someone. And so they were able to work out like some mechanical backroomy thing, because again, most of the people pressing charges against them were not in like within the state we're not doing so out of a broad sense of ethics it was like oh it just came up but 
by that point, they'd remaindered just an utter fuckload of money. And they were using the fact that they were able to do that to push their presence in markets and investments. Uh, so like before, um, I don't think PayPal ever went public, but um, they, they were doing it definitely for like the investment wing of like, look, this is how we can make money. So you should put money into us and we can give you a cut of the... Um, before the lawsuit actually went all the way through and it was declared that what PayPal was doing was like fucking hella illegal. Like you absolutely can't do that. Um, they had already basically cut the money and run. So like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel wrote themselves big ass checks. They sold all their, uh, all of their percentage points of PayPal and became fucking loaded and then they went on to their other projects. And then there was this big like snow job to try to obscure the fact that that's where a big chunk of their money came from. Obviously with Elon Musk, you also have the diamond mine shit in South Africa because <laughs> he inherited a fuckload of incredibly evil blood money um, that he poured that he poured into PayPal. And a lot of those people, especially higher up, they don't even have tech know-how, like not necessarily to defend that kind of venomous action if you do but they build themselves off of the back of like political maneuvering or like i put the money in so i get the money out um and you get thrown on the street um but they do all of this and then you know obviously elon musk made tesla and he made all these other things where he's constantly um functionally stealing the ips of all the people who work for him all the time because he writes his contracts in a nice way that's a uh, bog standard um, for, for the industry that it's like, oh, you made a really good thing. Well, you're still only going to get your, uh, your salary and I'm going to make billions off of your work. Um, they do that because they're predators. That's it. Like that's to answer your question, why there aren't more co-ops. <laughs> and I know that you know this, um, because we've talked about it a lot. Oh yeah. They're predators. That's their job in, and they, the thing that makes it difficult sometimes with manifestos against them is many of the ones who want to become predators don't always consciously know that that's what they're doing. The ones who have become them, they know they're not, they're not under some delusion that like they go in and do the work and all this kind of stuff. There's this vague awareness of like, I want to reap. I mean, that's where you get the classic joke of Bill Gates buying out. It's not a joke. It's a real thing. He bought out a bajillion companies when he was the CEO of Microsoft. And a lot of times it was just, oh, Lotus, you're making some really interesting word processors. You're making some really powerful word processors, ones that are more powerful than word. Here's a big check. We're deleting all of your work. And literally just like we're, we're killing projects by just like handing a check and destroying everything. Because it's like, oh, it'd be too hard to integrate it into the stuff we have for Windows. And it's a real threat if someone else developed it. So we're going to pay money to destroy you. Um, yeah, and it kind of ties into something um, Wendy is talking about in the book, which is that this isn't like a, a good business model that actually works for producing um, really interesting and great things that actually help people. This is just a, a money printer. Money printer goes brr. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, and you can, I mean, you can see that by just like looking at the companies themselves. Facebook is a social network. It doesn't, it's not doing anything. It doesn't help anyone. It's just, you can talk to your grandma on there. Uber is a taxi service. Uh, PayPal is like a bank. 
Um, you know, all of these things are just like something we already have, but slightly more efficient. And the things we already have could probably just be them if they were a bit smarter. But um, yeah, I mean, Wendy, there's it, that's correct. Yeah, that you have essentially argued in this that you know this isn't a efficient way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not an efficient way of doing things. I do want to add to the point where you're correct, and like I, I agree with you in that um, there isn't that much innovation going on in terms of like what these products and platforms do. I do think that it is important to remember there is a lot of like technological innovation that goes into making them scale and like goes into making them work the way they do. It's just that like, I think there are some really smart people working at these companies, working on interesting things. It's more that the product of what they're working on is just, it's so mundane, right? Like you have mm. people doing stuff with self-driving cars. I mean, that's like all this computer vision stuff. That's hard. Like that's, it's really, really cool. Um, and this ties into what you were saying before about like the intellectual challenge in terms of, um, you know, uh, a fiction writer, just like anyone who's creating anything wants to do something intellectually satisfying. I think there are a lot of people in the industry who are drawn more by the idea of doing something fun and creative and, you know, intellectually challenging than they are by the money itself. It's just that um, the system as it exists now does not channel that energy into anything super productive, right? Like the the main driver that's getting people to work on um, at these companies is, you know, some billionaire wants to become a little richer or someone wants to become a billionaire as opposed to actually creating products that are useful to society as a whole. And so that's why we have all of these people working on self-driving car technology for all these different companies, a lot of which are just like, you know, they have no business doing self-driving cars. Like why is Uber doing self-driving cars? It's just mm. completely this like, you know, money grab as opposed to they have everyone's interest in heart at heart. Um, and yeah, and I think that that's like kind of the shame, the fact that there are these people who um, are basically artists or scientists, like you can think of them that way, who they want to work on something that is intellectually satisfying. That's pro that's also good for the world. It's just the confluence isn't there. It's very hard to get paid for something that is both useful for the world and like, you know, actually good for humanity. And that's going to pay you a lot of money. And that's just like how the economic system works. Um, and going back to what what was being said earlier about like co-ops and equity ownership, I mean, there's something really interesting there in that a lot of the discourse in the tech industry, it likes to pretend that tech companies are co-ops, right? And mm. that you know, obviously there's some they're they're glossing over the fact that companies are not owned equally, but at the same time, employees, some of them anyway, do get some share in the company. Like if you're, you know, if you're you're the first employee, if you're the tenth employee of like a thousand employee business, you're probably going to own at least like 0.1%, which is not a lot. But but then what this does is it gives the the founders and the investors license to say that our employees are benefiting. How dare you want to like tax share ownership? Our, you know, 10th employee is someone who didn't even go to college and like this is a path for social mobility. And I think that's like, that's really disingenuous um, and really frustrating because like people believe that, right? They're like, oh, well, Silicon Valley is so generous. They give shares to employees. No, they give shares to employees because that's the way they expect to be able to recruit them and like get more work out of them. Because you can, you can work your first employee like 100 hours a week if you just give them like 1% of the business. And that's kind of the unfortunate truth. Like I think there's a lot of rhetoric around employees being able to own parts of these companies. And it's like the amount they own is is minuscule. Like the amount um, given to the 10th employee of a business, especially if they're like a woman or like a person of color, it's going to be so much less 
than what any of these like the founders or investors are going to get. And I think that's something we have to remember. Um, Silicon Valley is really good at PR and rhetoric and marketing and making making their like really shitty situation sound like this pile of gold. And it's like, mm. no, uh, I, I read something about this early employee at WeWork who was, in, I think it's some kind of like uh, non-technical role and she wasn't given any stock, even though she was very early on and men who were hired around the same time as her to do similar roles were given stock. And I think that's something mm. where it's like, sure, there's a little bit of employee ownership given that's, you know, different from say working in a, maybe like a, in a factory, employees don't get ownership, but it's like the amount of ownership is tiny compared to the um, the amount that the the actual owners are getting. And so it's not it's not like a justification or a way to legitimate exploitation. It's just a blind. It's it's a shield. And so these people, it's so these like fuckers can just stand up and say, "Well, I'm not exploiting anyone because this guy owns like one percent of the company." Um, and of course, as these companies get bigger. Uh, the way they distribute ownership, it doesn't. It's nothing approaching a co-op. It's there's no amount of equity. There's no amount of like egalitarian distribution going on here. It's very, at, at best, linear. At worst, like exponential. You have this like this pyramid where, you know, the founders of Google, they're they're all like multi-billionaires, right? And they have, they probably have like multiple homes and yachts and. I don't even know what else they're doing with their money, but they have way too much of it. Where you have all these contractors now, you have like thousands and thousands of people who are working at Google who don't even have any Google stock. Like they're not given it just because, you know, this is just how capitalism works. You create this hierarchy, you create this like pyramid and the people on the bottom, they're always seen as more disposable than the people who came first. And so, yeah, I think like this is actually something that's very key to the way Silicon Valley works. And it's not something that Silicon Valley invented. It's in a way, it's just like a holdover of capitalism of like this very rapacious very um very discriminatory kind of capitalism where you just have like a few white men on top who are billionaires um and then everyone else is just like kind of struggling to get by and there's like a little bit of a, a middle class in silicon valley which obscures the picture a bit but i think it's important to remember that the people who are you know making 500k a year at google that's like a tiny proportion of the people who are actually um, in Silicon Valley and even like within Google, the number of people who are full-timers is less than half or like who are, sorry, who are like a full-time employees who have benefits. It's less than half of companies like Google. And we can, we can track a lot of this stuff to, um, to when the, the tech world decided to very strongly court like the venture capital world sometime in the, it was around the 60s and 70s that obviously like capital and technology have always been intertwined. You don't get a V2 rocket without capital like that's not gonna like come out of nowhere but um especially like the silicon valley mindset as we know it largely coming out of especially the 70s and like we we have this recurrent um leftist sentiment that like the people who have the money to give you venture capital are those vampiric capital fucks and that money always has strings it is always a monkey paw. There is 0% of the time that it's not a deal with the devil. Um, but the thing is, obviously, the devil can be very tempting and can make a very good sounding deal. And it like it added this poisonous component to... Because even even having a bunch of other friends who work in... Um, I, have a, I have a friend who's like a big syndicalist and he works in tech for a university. Um, I have a bunch of friends who do programming, hearing the same kinds of things of like loving the creative end, like feeling as some of them like 
abandoned nominal creative jobs because they're like, I scratch my creative itch working on like programming projects and engineering projects. Like it, it feels exactly the same as writing a novel or making an album. But then, yeah, you see this like the, uh, that image of like the tentacled monster of capital that just like wraps itself up and like penetrates into spaces and then permanently like perverts them. Infuriating. I don't have so, a point. It just makes me mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like though that that's that's like the way to that's like the poison pill for the current way of the doing things in Silicon Valley is that the people actually doing things and making things and actually doing the coding are people like you, Wendy, uh, not Langdon, who nope. um, <laughs> who are real creatives and love uh, like solving these problems and creating new approaches and actually building these things. It's just right now they've been building things in order to mostly to sell advertising, which as someone who's worked in advertising, advertising doesn't actually do much it especially digital advertising it basically does nothing it digital adver- uh, is here's my rant digital <laughs> advertising just finds people who are going to buy a product already and puts a product in front of them and they were already going to buy it and then it says yay we we successfully persu- persuaded that person to buy something but it, it doesn't actually create new customers for anything it like statistically, like people have done studies and they found the effect of advertising is negligible. You may as well not do it. Like everyone, like will just go into a Burger King, say, uh, "Yeah, I'll have fries and a Coke." The person behind the counter will say, uh, "We have Pepsi," and they'll say, "Whatever." And um, yeah, that's advertising. Um, anyway, was it good? Yeah. So, do you reckon that um, if there were there was more of an infrastructure for people to who are creative who are doers and innovators to really work on amazing things outside of the silicon valley uh, sphere then that's something that could kind of you know brain drain silicon valley or or is the like lure of money and a stable job like so much that you're not going to be able to bring a lot of people out of there into uh better better but less lucrative projects i think that's a great question and it's it's a very contentious seeing like a a variant of this debate playing out in silicon valley already because there are there are companies that will pay you less money for whatever reason like they just they can't afford as much um and you know there are always vcs who will say well like those companies don't get as talented people and it's like well it depends on what you mean by talent and you know, there's a degree to which the the like dominant culture under capitalism conditions everyone to be like in pursuit of money in some way or the other, and it just you know it makes it very easy to be motivated by money, very difficult to discard that entirely. Sure, I, that that's true. By the same time, like I think there are people who um, either because of their background or because of their experience in the industry have come to realize that money isn't the whole story, and even in a society where money actually does matter so much, like a society that is as materialistic and as unequal as ours is now, there are still people who are saying that, well, maybe I don't need to have like 10 houses and a private jet. Maybe I can just like live a, you know, normal life and like with the people I love and 
have uh, like a 40 hour work week and just build something that I think is cool. Um, you know, there, there are companies that are issuing the venture capital model and still instead doing something that's more like uh, more bootstrapped and more just like growing slowly and like having a normal work-life balance. And I think that that debate is actually shifting in the right direction. And there are people who would not work at a company like Uber, no matter how much you pay them because mm -hmm. they just don't Good. agree with the ethics. People who wouldn't work at Palantir or now wouldn't work at Facebook. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's like the, the debate has been happening for a while. I think as the tech industry has been revealed to just to be more rapacious than a lot of people knew, it's easier to convince people that money isn't the whole story. At the same time, you know, there there is something to be said about the idea that because a lot of smart people are have been taught to care a lot about money, that it's going to be hard in the near future to, you know, convince them to work. Rich people are shit and should die. That's parody. We yeah. should kill them personally. Parody. Again, parody. This is a joke. I will kill them. That's definitely parody. Hmm. Yeah, we should kill them in video games. That's a that's a way of a lot of people um cover up their parody satires. They talk about like, I'm gonna kill that guy in Call of Duty. I, I tell people that I'm exactly like Lenny Bruce and that it's just like it's like, oh, you think edgy comedy is your like gross problematic jokes? No. Real edgy comedy is this. I'm going to kill Elon Musk. That's comedy parody satire. Comedy. Yeah, it's parody. You can't 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 try me on that one. Freedom of speech, right? But, QED. Um, I think I think the most important thing to leave off on, though, is uh, Neil Stevenson is a hell of a writer, right? I, mm. I mean, we can all agree on that, right? Yeah, yeah, he's amazing yeah. at like creating yeah. worlds. Hmm. I uh, I I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I have no way of knowing whether he's actually any good at writing. I do know that I've read and loved literally every book that he's put out. Yeah, mm. same. I even liked Reem D and the sequel to Reem D you just put out. Reem D has a 70-page gun battle, and it's <laughs> not very exciting. I don't fucking care, though. I don't, I don't fucking care. That shit was incredible. The sequel to Reem D turns into a high fantasy set inside of an MMO that is also the afterlife. Yeah, Reem D was, uh, yeah, that was, a, I think that was the last one of his I read. I, I should, I get back into it. I've got like a bunch of his stuff on my shelves. I'm just. Well, he only put out two Reem after Reem D. Well, I'm not counting the Mongoliad or, um, or Dodo, because uh, those were collaborative ones. But in terms of like solo novels, he only put out Seven Eves, which is the one about the, uh, oh, the opening yeah, line of that's oh, tight. The moon blows up. And they never explain why. <laughs> like he deliberately yeah. is like so they have a lot of theories, but no one knows which one's true, and they can't ever find out because then everyone died. <laughs> I mean, that was a masterpiece of a book, but at the same time, like reading thinking about it now, like Elon Musk has read that, Bill Gates has read that, like all these just like yeah. terrible, you know, tech elites have read it, and they probably think you know, they want to do that. They want to be the heroes who save humanity. I'm like, God damn it, like why can't we just enjoy things without these people Wait, has Elon Musk read that? Is that like oh, you know, I, I know he has it. So you know, yeah, he's so, exactly. So I'm not sure if you. I I feel like you had to know Miss Gareth, but like, oh yeah, I, I Neil Stevenson fan. is. Well, I, he, well, it's more that Neil Stevenson is deeply entwined with the tech world, specifically in Seattle, but then through there, a lot of other places. I mean, you have 
strong connections to Microsoft because of that. He would moonlight and do speeches for a bunch of different uh, tech companies. He used to be a columnist for Wired for a while. Mm -hmm. oh, I knew that. Yeah. 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 Like, so yeah, the likelihood that Elon Musk has read that book is 100 fucking percent. There's zero <laughs> chance that he hasn't like absolutely. But, but his character like gets radiation poisoning and diarrheas himself to death. He, he looks really heroic while doing it. I guess. I mean, it's rich, as rich people, rich people love to read things that are deeply critical of them and show them to be asinine buffoons and go, <laughs> all of this is so good and true. And that part is just entertainment. That part, that <laughs> specific part, just for laughs. But the rest, yeah. I am virtuous, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his character does technically save all of humanity and die in the process, almost a Christ-like figure. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, I at least hope Hillary Clinton has read that book, because she doesn't come yeah. off well. No, she doesn't. She, uh... What? You don't You don't think leading a, a, false, uh, a false trip to Mars that you know isn't going to work and then ends cannibalism uh, is, is a good ending? <laughs> yeah. Not, not that uh, real-life Hillary Clinton doesn't know a few things about eating people. Parody satire. To be um, fair, becoming a uh, becoming a space cannibal is pretty baller. To be fair, Kinda, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm definitely with her. Like, <laughs> right? Like that's that's definitely like if she had campaigned in 2016 on like Trump is a big piece of shit and he's got a lot of outstanding sexual assault charges that are 100 percent true. Me, meanwhile, I only want to go to space and eat somebody. I'd be like, holy <laughs> shit. She'd be like, yeah. it's like Warhammer, but like lo-fi. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I feel um Stephanie needs a TV treatment because <laughs> the world needs to know what we know, which is that that book is fucking insane. I, I love mean, how it feels, it feels like it gets normal, like you get used to it for like two thirds of the book. You're like, okay, it's gradually, it's sinking into a thing. And then the time skip happens and it gets everything in the time skip. Like every 50 pages gets more nuts. Like when mm. the seal people show up <laughs> and they're just like, oh yeah, by the way, the dude from the Navy from earlier in the book. Yeah. He turned into a seal man. And you're like, would that even, would that even work? You became seals in a thousand years. That's incredibly rapid evolution. Like, yeah, we're seal people now. Yeah, and yeah, you just catch yourself reading it going, oh, wait, is Hillary Clinton about to eat Malala Yousefi now? Oh, yeah, she is. <laughs> that, that's real. And um, uh, fucking uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is there, too. People people really undervalue. They're like, oh, Neil Stevenson, he's all dry and he goes off on these nerdy asides and you either love the nerdy asides or you hate them. And I'm like, that's true. But also all of his books are insane. And you've forgotten that. You've forgotten how all of them are insane. He, he hides behind detailed descriptions of orbital mechanics. And then there's space cannibals. I also really love how the Baroque cycle, which is widely considered either his very best or his very worst, depending on how shitty you are in your brain zone. It's his best. It's his best one. Um, has an immortal alchemist. <laughs> like, just, just casually. He's plot relevant, though, because he keeps bringing the main character back to life. <laughs> He'll just yeah. show up and he's like, I gave you some elixir and now you'll never die. Anyway, peace. In in some way, like the immortal alchemist was the most believable part 
of the book. Like everything else just felt even more weird and ridiculous. I love the amount that I learned about uh, Isaac Newton becoming basically yeah. inventing numismatics as we know it. <laughs> like most of uh, I was talking to my partner about this, like most of banking as we know it before him was all either independent banks or very loosely tied to the innovations that the Knights Templar put forward with um, with uh, crusades and the fact that you could deposit your wealth in a Knights Templar bank and your family who is back home in Europe could still buy things, even though the head of the household was off fighting. And then all of a sudden, Isaac Newton, like, and that, that was most of his life too. Like, that's the other part where I was like, is this real? And I started looking it up and it's like, holy shit, literally all of this is real, except the part where he's talking to an alchemist. Um, although he definitely met with alchemists because Isaac yeah. Newton did love alchemy. Yeah, and he predicted the end of the world for like 2050 something. He And he... You know, really went into it. It wasn't just in being I mean, weird. He was like, really, really loved, got into the Bible and predicted, like, yes, like 2050. I mean, I'm looking outside and that one seems, <laughs> you yeah. know, <laughs> not a bad I'm guess. Not... I'm going to be honest. Yeah, he's pretty, pretty solid. But um, we look at we look at climate change estimates and it's like, oh, my man, so it's on to something. Very terrifyingly, <laughs> you have a point there, Isaac. But uh, yeah, en enough about Neil Stevenson, though. Uh, Wendy, where can people find this book? Great question. Uh, I think you can. So it's on Amazon, but it, you can also pre-order through like various other booksellers, including independent bookstores. Um, if you go to abolishsiliconvalley.com, there's like a link to places you can get it. And you can also probably like pirate an ebook. I don't really care either way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> rebellious wow no one's actually that's the kind of shit if you people are listening and you hear that shit buy the book of the person who said that because that means <laughs> that they're baller and like they deserve the money now instead of being a prick hmm. i mean I, I personally just like i i i hate intellectual property as a thing this has like been my Same. thing since i was a kid since i started doing like open source stuff and i'm having a hard time reconciling that with the fact that now as an author i own intellectual property and need it to be preserved and it's like you know i mean i i don't know i'm just like if if people buy my book that's really kind of them if they if they want to pirate it or just like get it from the library sure that's fine i'm happy happy with that that's an extremely good stance that I agree with 100%. I'm, I'm, uh, I would clap, but then the mic would pick it up. So I'm clapping in my mind like a child. Oh, do you know, speaking of clapping, do you know something we do in Britain now? Every clap. night, eight o'clock. Yeah. Every night, eight o'clock, we, uh. we applaud, we applaud the uh, workers of the National Health Service. It's like a two minutes hate, but uh, for love of the National Health Service. I've heard landlords have started accepting that as payment. That would be nice, yeah. Just clap in and just be in a NHS. My 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 horrible landlord won't. My toilet got con condemned the other day. So you're, wait, that, um, wait, your toilet got <laughs> condemned? Like did yeah, it, my, did my, it come in your like story. Like, awful, awful toilet. Yeah, a, a plumber basically ruled my entire bathroom to be um, unlivable and said the bathroom should be just removed from the house. <laughs> oh so, <my> <laughs> wow, that's me. a wonderful time for that. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's just never going to happen until this whole thing's in like a year, this whole thing's over. Well, if, so, like, if your bathroom is directly above the bathroom below you, then you could just make like a shoot. 
No, it's directly above my kitchen. So <laughs> yeah, you're gonna do the shoot would uh would work there. So like, well, I mean it would work. It work. does yeah, I mean like, not... it's not mechanically gonna stop working just because you don't like where it goes. <laughs> That's that's the Silicon Valley way of fixing things. <laughs> Make a this, poop. This has to break things, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'll ask uh, ask for forgiveness later. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So move fast and uh, steal this book. <laughs> um, we're going to end off with a song by uh, Jerk Band. Yes, uh, Ruins of Beverast. Uh, they've been doing kind of like. Uh, sort of black gaze i guess for a while now um their last album exuvia came out way back in 2017 before i love that album that is so, so far album, my yeah. favorite one of theirs although i do yeah. know that like rains uh rains upon the impure is that the name of it i think i think one yeah Doesn't that one about, like, i know a, a lot of people love something. yeah rain upon the impure yeah yeah that was like t- yeah 2007 wow yeah, they started as extremely like raw and very, very lo-fi black metal and added more and more like weird avant-garde doom metal stuff. Like it's mm. it's progressive without being like proggy. I really also love Takatum Tutum. Yeah. That I love that. Except the, the cover, which is incredibly silly. Yeah. Yeah. The the cover is really, really, really funny. Like uh text on Twitter, metal text. Uh, Definitely should have had that in his like worst album covers. Uh, I think he compendium. did. I, I think he did. I remember That's him. Fair. I remember the first time I saw this was through uh, his parodies of this. But um, they've got an, a new like a split EP out with a band called Morning Beloved. Um, the the split EP is called Don't Walk on the Mass Graves. So that's going to sound really good in about a month when there are mass graves like outside my house. And um, Runes of Beverest's song is called Silhouettes of Death's Grace. It's a slow burner. It's kind of long. So, you know, maybe get a cup of tea first or coffee if you're American. And um, yeah, just uh, <laughs> yeah, just like uh, chill with this song for like the next 10 minutes. It's quite, uh, it, <laughs> it starts off quite relaxing. Metal art. Metal Archives has a typo for for the lyrics, and I just I just posted it in chat, and it's very funny. <laughs> Motherfucker said Codweb. <laughs> I did say cod, Codweb. Well, uh, so yeah, um, we're gonna be back next week with uh, oh, we, we got a, a another double A side for this week. We got Str- Shannon Strutry from Struggle Session and YouTube. Uh, talking to us about web comics that's going to be coming out real soon probably like middle of next week um and next week we've got a book called thinner which is about what if ikea had portals to the multiverse in it exactly and also it's Mm -hmm. gay so double plus yeah because tor is just tor books is just like yeah on one they've been fucking killing it yeah (laughs) yeah they've yeah, this is on one. And Finner is a really good, really good book. Um, uh, and who else we got next week? We got we got other people coming up. We've got um, Margaret Kiljoy from fucking uh, Feminaz Goal and also Brilliant Books is going to be on the show. It's probably the first one we're ever going to have to record 
on a telephone because she lives off the grid. So um, yeah, you know, calling people off the grid. Who else is doing that out there? Fucking Comtown? They'd never do that. No, um, fuck Comtown, by the way. Fuck. Oh well, yeah, yeah, do yeah. Terrible podcast. Not funny at all. Um, also a terrible dude. Just fucking uh, garbage. But. <laughs> Yeah, garbage dude, shitty podcast where you just talk for like 45 minutes about like New York comedy inside baseball that no one cares about. And then it gets like a billion followers. Um, anyway, here's Silhouettes of Death's Grace by Ruins of Beverus. Go and steal or buy uh, a bar Silicon Valley. Here's Ruins of Beverus.
Und dein Leben will ich aus dir herausrühren sehen. 